Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, if you're new to our church, my name is Dave. I have the privilege of serving as a lead pastor, and uh, I'm going to preach this morning. You've already heard a lot of things, so I hope you still have a little stamina left to stay with us for the Word of God. I want to just give you a quick reminder of this series that we're in right now. Uh, We're calling it Marriage Lessons, but I want to give you a few words of explanation about that. The sermon series was born out of an idea, um, a suggestion that Pastor Jared made. I was thinking about a series on relationships, and he thought, what if each of the pastors just kind of shared about one defining life lesson about marriage that has caused our home lives to be healthier? Something that if we could impart one lesson... Um, about married life and relationships in general, it would benefit others. And so that's the way that we approached it. Um, Pastor Jared preached about, uh, he he shared about um, living with purpose in relationships, that it's not enough just to coexist, but that there ought to be a sense of purpose that drives our relationships. And Pastor Frank last Sunday preached about oneness and this idea of thinking in terms of how I can bless the other person rather than how I could receive blessing from them. This morning is my turn, and the title of the message is Let It Go. And I'll explain a little more why I chose that image and that title and this text. I want to read the passage for you, and then I just want to play a video clip that will kind of kick us off here. The text is from Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 38. Here's what it says. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I think that's a very powerful passage, and it's one that is easy to gloss over without catching its real power. But I want to explore this passage this morning with you because I think it's something every one of us needs to hear. If you are in a relationship, whether it's dating, engaged, or married, or I really believe this principle even applies to friendships, to relationships with coworkers, to parent-child and sibling relationships, I think there is not a single human relationship to which these principles that Jesus taught Do not apply. And if you will follow the way of Jesus in these relationships, you will begin to see your whole experience change. I think most of us can admit that not all of our relationships go well. Some of us came into this building this morning with a relationship that is really messed up right now. A relationship that means something to you, but it is in very, very bad shape. I want you to think about how you got to that place in that relationship. And think about if the way you got there was because you built that relationship by the way of Christ. Chances are that one or the other person in that relationship lost sight of the teachings of Jesus and decided simply to live out of natural human expressions. And that's when things began to fall apart. When we stop thinking about Jesus and his way and start doing what we feel like doing, things around us begin to fall apart. And we cannot claim the beautiful promises of community and intimacy and wholeness in life if we depart from the way of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, listen up, because I can't imagine there is a person in this room who is not in some kind of relationship one way or the other. 
I want to play a clip from Schindler's List. Are you guys familiar with that movie? It's an old movie about the Holocaust. This scene is Oscar Schindler, who is a guy who's a, a successful business owner, and through his business and his legitimate freedom as a German citizen, he delivered many, many Jews from death. And uh, this is a scene where he's having a conversation. Um, he's having a conversation with the commandant of the prison. Why do you drink that motor oil? Hmm? I send you good stuff all the time. Your liver's going to explode like a hand grenade. You know, I look at you. I watch you. You're never drunk. Oh, that's... That's real control. Control is power. That's power. Is that why they fear us? We have the power to kill, that's why they fear us. They fear us because we have the power to kill arbitrarily. A man commits a crime, he should know better. We have him killed and we feel pretty good about it. Or we kill him ourselves and we feel even better. It's not power, though. It's justice. It's different than power. Power is when we have every justification to kill. And we don't. You think that's power? That's what the Emperor said. A man stole something, he's brought him before the emperor, he throws himself down on the ground, he begs for mercy. He knows he's going to die. And the emperor pardons him. This worthless man, he lets him go. I think you are drunk. That's power, Amon. love that clip. It's a powerful movie, and I think that's the most powerful scene in the whole film. And the words of Oscar Schindler in that scene have very, very strong gospel undertones. Because if you think about what the gospel is, it is exactly that story. It's a story of a God who had great power, but his greatest power was not demonstrated in things like the flood that swept away the entire population of the earth. I imagine if you've seen Bruce Almighty, you saw a graphic de depiction of the flood. I imagine the real flood must have been staggering to behold. But I don't think the greatest demonstration of God's power was seen in things like that. The greatest expression of the power of God is seen every time he looks at a person who is not worthy of redemption or forgiveness or mercy, and he releases that person because only he can. He is justified. He is within his rights to destroy those who go against him. And yet when he dismisses us, when he pardons us, that is the greatest possible expression of power. You know, that's what Jesus is addressing in this passage. He's talking about the power we wield and the way we understand how human relationships are supposed to work. Listen to what he says. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. I think what Jesus is saying is this. The truest proof of love in any relationship isn't seen in the good times when you're getting along and the chemistry is great and we're so close. You know, a lot of people say that's how we know we love each other because in the good times we are just like that. We finish each other's sentences. We like the same things. We smile so naturally. That's great, but can I tell you something? That is not an amazing thing. It is like falling off a log and succumbing to the power of gravity to love somebody who loves you. The truest proof of love is not seen only in the good times, but the real proof of love, the power of love, especially divine love, 
is seen in those times when the person we say we love has stabbed us in the back, has betrayed us. When someone who was supposed to take care of us neglected us. When someone we were supposed to be able to trust lied to us, betrayed us, cheated on us. It is in those moments you begin to finally understand the real power and nature of the love that is demonstrated by God and the kind of love he is trying to describe and bring us into in his kingdom. I mean, it's almost mocking in his tone. He's saying, look, everybody loves people who are nice to them. What do you want, a cookie? Just picture Chris Rock's voice saying that. What do you want, a cookie? Seriously, anyone loves people who love them. But real love is demonstrated in this. Can we love those who have betrayed us? People with whom we have a legitimate grievance to say, you wounded me, you did wrong against me, there's no defense, stop trying to explain yourself. And it's that point where you have the moral high ground, where your foot is on their throat, and there's nothing they can say. It's at that moment that what you do with that power reveals what you understand about love. And everyone has a choice. You can remove that boot or you can drive it down and finish the job. And most bystanders would not fault you for crushing their throat. Because look what they did to you. Who wouldn't retaliate? Jesus says it a different way. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. then you will be children of the Most High, it says, when you do that. Because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. I believe we closely resemble God and the love of God most when we love our enemies. I think anyone, even irreligious people, can love their friends. But it's when you love your enemies that you begin to demonstrate that this thing called the gospel has begun to transform the way you look at the world. In fact, it begins that way because it starts with how, transforming how you look at yourself. You know, it might be a little extreme to talk about a marriage lesson and bring in the word enemy. I mean, the person you married has promised you their whole future. But aren't there times when the person that you're in relationship with, people you're supposed to be very close to, that they feel like your enemy? Aren't there times like that? Where maybe they're not your direct enemy, but they sure are not acting like your friend. It seems like they're doing everything in their power to annoy you, to oppose you, to thwart your plans, to not change in ways that are meaningful and important to you. And so I think, I think if you are in a relationship and you're paying attention and you actually care, you're going to be frustrated and hurt countless times in that relationship. I just want to see a show. Is there anyone who's been in a relationship and has never been hurt or annoyed by that other person? So far, a thousand percent awesome. Just zero problems, zero grievances, no offenses. Anyone? I didn't think that person existed. If they did, that person would be in an asylum because I don't think it's possible to be in a relationship with another sinful human being and never experience grievances and wounds. You're going to experience probably today a wound or an annoyance from the very person that's supposed to be standing by your side. It might happen more than once. If you're a woman and you have a man next to you, that man will probably tick you off at least five times before bed today. And here's one of the most common mistakes I've seen, especially in young couples. It's this tendency to try to pick at every scab, address every issue, fix every grievance, tackle every offense every time it happens. I've seen this happen again and again. It destroys relationships before they ever have a chance because every time I'm a little bit bothered, I've got to bring it up with you. We gotta talk about this. I can't go to bed. You really bugged me. And I'm afraid. Why do we do that? Why is there such a strong tendency to tackle every little, it's like we swat every bug that shows up. And why do we do that? We do it because we're afraid, maybe, that if I let it go this time, it's gonna become a way of life for you. Oh, you showed up late. I didn't say a word. You know, sometimes I'm at an appointment. I'm waiting at a coffee shop. The person's not coming. And finally, I'm just about to leave, but I think, I should just give them a call. I'm going to take off. And 30 minutes after we're supposed to meet, I'm about to walk out and I see their car pulling in. 
Now, they've just completely wasted 30 minutes of my day. I'm tempted to say something. Nice of you to roll in. But I can see by the look in their face, they're not in a good place. And the question is, will I bring it up? I have my foot on their throat. They're feeling bad. They're apologizing. What would I do with that? And the tendency I so often see is we swat every bug. We think, well, if you can waste 30 minutes of my time today, next time we meet, I might as well show up 45 minutes late because, you know, I think, and we're afraid that things that we let go will just keep becoming worse and worse problems. Or maybe it's because we think if I don't say anything, they'll think I'm okay with this, that I like it, that I'm okay when they do this. And I got to make sure they understand very clearly, no me gusta, I don't like that behavior. When you do that, it makes me feel really upset. So for whatever reason, we feel this inner compulsion. Every time I'm bothered, i got to let you know it, and we got to try to fix it right now. If there's anything like a secret to our marital success, I mean, Jeannie and I, I, I can say by the grace of God, we hardly ever fight, okay? It's, rarely, it's very rare that we argue. And I think if there's any secret to our marital success, I can't take much credit for it. It's simply this. We have learned that it's much better for a marriage to let 90% of the things just go. I know how much that bothers you to hear me say it. Some of you, like you're those people when the teacher doesn't fill in every blank in the worksheet, you're like, oh, we've got to get 100%. You know, we got to fill it all in. And to hear 90% of the things that bug you, just let it slide. Let it go. Like water off a duck's back, it never happened. I'm just going to pretend I didn't even notice. I don't think I'm the one who leads our family in this. I think Jeannie has a tremendous capacity to overlook the things. I, I'm, I can be a very annoying person, I think. And, um, you know, imagine living with a pastor, right? I mean, you got to hear a lot of lecturing, a lot of correction. And, you know, like, and so she, she overlooks so much. I could see it. I could see the flash of like, ugh. And she throws up a little in her mouth and swallows it. And then she, she just bites her tongue. And I can see the moment at which she turns the corner where she goes, I'm not going to even make a big deal out of it. I'm just going to let it go. And sometimes she's like, like that. And then you just walk off. And when I see that moment happen, I am so amazed and grateful. And I've actually learned from Jeannie how to do this. How to recognize that not every little thing in our relationship has to be addressed right now. See, I think because I grew up in a fairly healthy family, I'm not used to anomalies. And I, I feel like I got to get rid of every little bump. I got to sand it down. But, you know, I think she just understands you can't fix everything. So just let most of it go. Now, I'm going to say more about that because I know that's really annoying to hear. If that's where it ends, it's a pretty jacked up sermon. Okay. Because that's just like saying, just put it all under the rug, throw it into the closet, it'll be all okay. It won't, because eventually you have to open that closet, and it's all going to come dumping on you. So we'll talk about how we can manage to live this way. But look, look at what Jesus says. He says, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. In that one verse, four times he says in four different ways, so I think Jesus would agree with me. If you're going to make a mistake at all in a relationship, err on the side of being too forgiving, not on the side of being unforgiving. It's better to have been reckless in your forgiveness and pay the price than to go the other way and pick at every open sore. Kick every person who is down on their knees. Spot every blemish, every imperfection, and voice it out loud. What Jesus says is the nature of his kingdom and the way people are meant to form community is this. If you can't get past the blemishes of others, you have no understanding of how God can relate to you. If God sanded down every rough spot every day, there would be nothing of us left. We'd be a bloody pulp, a stain that used to be me. God has been working on me every second of every day. He doesn't ever let me breathe, and I am filled with imperfections. But what he says is, the way of the kingdom is this. If we're going to make a mistake at all, it must be on the side of forgiving too recklessly, too generously, too much. 
be merciful. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Forgive. Let this be your natural default inclination. And you will begin to see an amazing transforming power of the gospel on your relationships. Remember when Peter came up to Jesus trying to brown nose and he's like, you know, the rule on the street is this. If somebody, you know, messes you up, if they, if they betray you three times, up to three times, you got to give them a pass. That's a lot if you think about it. The same person, imagine if I had three appointments in three months with the same person and each time they are a half hour late. After a while, I'm like, this is not good, man. It's starting to tick me off a little bit. By the fourth month, I'm ready for them to do that. And so, so Peter's like, well, okay, I know, Jesus, you're like this real forgiving dude. So let me ask you, should I go up to seven? That is more than doubling the standard on the street. And Jesus looks right at Peter without flinching. He goes, oh, you, you're so off the mark. You want to know how many times you got to release a person from the same sin, the same little 70 times 7. I don't think he's trying to be exact. He's just, let me take your number and multiply it by a factor so astounding, you're going to think I'm joking. In other words, he's saying to Peter, you live with me, you walk with me, you sleep next to me, you eat the same food I eat, and yet you don't even have a clue just what I'm talking about in this kingdom. You don't even have a clue at the level, the standard of mercy I'm talking about. You're so far off the mark. You think you're almost there. I've borne up with as much as I can take. I, 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 I stood as much as I can stand and I can't stand no more. I'm Popeye all of a sudden, right? I can't take it anymore. I've let you go as far as I'm willing to go and now you've crossed the line. That's it. We're done. We get to that point way earlier than Jesus ever intended for us. And our society applauds while we do it. I was like, yeah, you go, girl. Who wouldn't yell at him? Who wouldn't leave him behind in the dust? That's what we do. Three strikes, four strikes, seven strikes, you are out. For some people, one big strike, there's no recovery. I'm involved in relationships and conflicts like that where, man, there's no getting back into the house ever. It's just shut. It's permanent. It is in the way we manage conflict that the depth of the gospel's penetration into our hearts is shown. You want to know where the gospel is in your life? Look no further than at how you handle conflict. Listen to how N.T. Wright, he's a bishop, uh, an Anglican bishop in England. He's a professor of New Testament. And here's what he writes. It's so beautiful. He says, the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. Think of the best thing you can do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. Think of what you'd really like someone to do for you and do it for them. Think of the people to whom you are tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. These instructions have a fresh spring-like quality. They're all about new life bursting out energetically like flowers growing through concrete and startling everyone with their color and vigor. What N.T. Wright is describing is a way of life in the kingdom of God that is so foreign to us. It's a thousand strikes and you're still in policy. It's a way of saying you hang in there with people because God is still at work. And if you bail, you will never understand that there's greater power than what human beings have. Why do you think in some communities the only thing that speaks with any power is a gun in your face? Because the people in those communities have given up hope that anything ever changes. But you don't need a gun in your hand to subscribe to that way of thinking. A lot of people, they yell, they hit They slam the door and walk out and go to a bar because they've given up any hope that any change is possible in relationships. And that's because they've lost their grip on the gospel of Christ that is able to transform relationships. So I really believe that the way we ought to live in the kingdom and the way we ought to live in a marriage that is built around Christ is that we forgive as a knee-jerk response. That the majority of the things that grieve us are just dismissed and forgiven, pardoned right away. That is power, and it's power we have to exercise. Here's why that matters. Let me give you a few quick reasons why letting it go matters. First is that I think it keeps you humble. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 3-4. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log 
that is in your own eye. I mean, can you read that without laughing a little bit? Hey, dude, you, you, got, you got a little something in your eye. I mean, it's absurd. You're probably whacking him in the side of the head with a log sticking out of your own eye as you say it. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. I think when people do wrong to us, it's easy to forget that we also do wrong to others. And it's important that we let most things go because that's what we expect others to do for us. Look, I know I'm sloppy, I'm not perfect. Hey, I'm only human. How come that, that only applies when it's aimed at us? Look, I'm only, how come we rarely say to, hey, they're only human? Give them, give them a break. We don't say that. We say, I'm only human, you have to be an angel. If you want to live with me, I get to be human, you have to be perfect. Isn't that the double standard by which so many of us live? And so it's, it matters because it reminds you, nobody in this relationship is perfect. Yes, you might be a little more imperfect than me this time around, but don't worry, you'll have your chance to suck it up someday. You'll have your chance to be the jerk. I promise you, you're in relationship long enough, you just take turns being the evil one. Right? Is that not true? If you've been married a year, don't say anything. You don't know yet. <laughs> that one person might still have dominated the whole jerk office. But pr- I promise you, if you're married more than 10 years, you take turns flipping and flopping who gets to be the bad guy. It's just the way it works. Here's another reason why I think letting it go, 90% of things, just let it slide. Because it gives people time and space to change. You know, when the Apostle Paul was trying to write a treatise on love, He's trying to describe what love is like in the kingdom of God. The first word he uses is a very strange choice. He says, love is patient. Well, that's not exactly, you know, romantic, is it? Love is really patient. (laughs) Paul, that's why you're single. You start love is and you finish it with patient. What a dud, right? Who wants to date that guy? But let me tell you why that's such genius. Because everyone you ever love will be imperfect. They will require patience from you if you want to go the distance with them. They may have really screwed up at one point in your life, but five miles down the road, they will make amends and change. They will be different if you stick around and keep your heart open long enough to let people make mistakes and come back. But if you're one of those people, there's no rebounding. One strike, you're done. You get to build You get to put new carpet in the doghouse, get comfortable. That's where you're staying forever. There's no room to change if every little blemish is constantly pointed out. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where do you live then? I have a friend who made the very unwise choice. He bought a new house in in, uh, in the northern suburbs. And he proceeded, he's a handy guy, so he proceeded to remodel all 11 rooms of his house simultaneously. He did demo work first, and afterwards he goes, uh, I should have thought this through a little bit because, and here's what he said, there's no place to live. <laughs> it's sawdust, broken debris everywhere. Where are we supposed to live? We bought a house, but there's no place to live in it because every room is being remodeled concurrently. But that's what we do to our partners a lot of the times. Oh, I'm going to fix you. <laughs> Don't even get comfortable. You're not done yet. After we work on this, we're going to work on this, and then we're going to work on this. And you're just like, I have no place to just breathe. How am I supposed to grow when everything I do is wrong to you? I get working on this thing, and all of a sudden you're working on that thing. And Look, pick one. I don't want to be anybody's remodeling project. I'm a human being. I need a place where I can breathe a little so that maybe... If God is at work, I might change a little bit. But you know how it is. And can I just challenge the ladies a little bit? Only because you're more diligent than men. It's not because you're more naggy. Men are just too lazy to care most of the time. As long as you're not yelling at us, we're okay with the relationship. Just how men are. How's everything going? She's not mad at me, so we're great. Okay, that's the way a man thinks. Women are always auditing the quality of the relationship. And so I'm picking you out, not because you're more naggy, but because you care more. You're diligent in the condition, the monitoring of the relationship. But in your diligence, because all you're in the control room and all the dials and gauges are in front of you, here's a man's gauge. It's a woman's face. 
Smile means good, frown means bad. Woman's, that's like the nuclear control center, right? Boeing 737. But because you see everything, it's tempting to say, we've got to adjust everything now. And what it does is it leaves no space for a person to find their path to change. Let me give you one other reason why it matters to let most things go. It promotes the right kind of escalation. Okay? Escalation is a part of all relationships, and it's certainly a part of all conflict, isn't it? No conflict stays where it is. It always gets worse. If it's not resolved, it doesn't just stay there. It keeps growing like a fire that finds more wood. Look at what, look at what Jesus says. He says, be merciful, and there's this cadence, a rhythm to it. Um, just as your heavenly Father is merciful, and then later on he says, um, do, not, do not judge, then you will not be judged. Do not condemn, then you will not be condemned. Forgive, then you will be forgiven. There is this seesaw effect that says, look, every relationship goes through escalation patterns. But in most cases, it's a negative, destructive escalation. You retaliate, and they retaliate back. You hit, and they hit back. You kick below the belt, they kick back. And every time, it gets worse and worse. So he says, imagine when you are merciless, when you are judgmental, when you are condemning, when you are unforgiving in a relationship, when you're, that's your pattern, what do you think that does to the relationship? What effect does it have on the other person? Have you ever had a person in your life where you were ruthlessly, merciless, judgmental, condemning, unforgiving, and they're like, whoa, you really taught me a lesson. I got to be better so you will stop being so bad to me. That's not the way the human heart works. Every time we're merciless, judgmental, condemning, unforgiving, it escalates in the wrong direction. It leaves the other person wanting to retaliate, to defend themselves. But imagine if in your relationships you were committed to being merciful, not judging, not condemning, forgiving to a fault. What kind of escalation would that create in the relationship? Because when a person knows they're wrong, look, watch basketball players, okay? As soon as they, they commit a fault, they do this. It's like second grade. That was me. I, my bad. My bad. I, here's my jersey number. Okay, I, I did that. They own up to it. People know when they've done wrong. They just don't like having everyone else pointed out. Just like when you got that big honking zit on your nose and everyone's like, dude, do you know you got a big zit? I know. I got a mirror. I don't need you to tell me I've got a big honking zit on my nose. But there are people who, do you know? Everyone knows what's wrong with them. Most people do. It's not that fun to be constantly reminded of every blemish. And so Jesus says, listen, make it your default setting to release people. To create an atmosphere in the relationship where every now and then they get away with it. Where they realize the hammer won't come down for every mistake I make. But there's room here to breathe, to find mercy, to have someone still love me even though I wasn't perfect. Do you need that? Would you like to live in that house? Or would you like to live in the merciless, judgmental, condemning, unforgiving house? Which house would you rather live in? And which house are you creating with your heart and your attitude? Let me tie all of this together and give you a practical recommendation, an application. It's a technique that we call the monthly fish fry. Pastor Frank last week introduced the concept um, The way we approach it is slightly different, but the basic ideas are the same. So you should have received on the way in a two-sided sheet of paper. Raise your hand if you did not receive the monthly fish fry instructions. Raise it high, and one of our greeters will make sure that you get a copy. Okay, just keep keep them raised until they come around and get to you. It's important you have this in your hand because uh, I don't have time to actually walk you through the whole document here. I'm trusting that you'll read it, but I just want to set it up for you and challenge you to work through this at your own pace, in your own setting, okay? Um, If your hand gets tired, do the second grade trick. It works. All right. 
And I just want to set up the monthly fish fry. I'm not going to, I thought about role playing it with somebody right here on the stage. And I think it might be an important thing for you to see someday, but we just don't have the time for it this morning. And so I, 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 what I've done is I've taken the standard instruction set and I've expanded it so that it's longer and more detailed. Okay. Um, and, and so that way it requires less explanation. There's still a few folks on this side. Okay. I think we've got it. So here's, here's the idea, okay? You know that it's human nature to defend ourselves when we feel like we're being attacked. In fact, it's built into our physiology. It's remarkable how fast your eyelids will shut if at the very tips of your eyelashes, there's a flutter of something that looks like it's going to hit your eyeball. Your eyelid is so fast because it's built even into our physiology. Throw a ball at any guy who's reasonably athletic and without even thinking about it, You'll catch it, right? It's our nature to defend ourselves. You'll know which kids get beat up a lot because just when you, you go to pat their heads, they flinch. They're like, dude, they're like, man, you must get beat up a lot at home because the kid's so flinchy. Elijah's like that, I think, because both me and my oldest son were always tickling him or jumping on him. So you can't get near Elijah without him flinching like this, okay? And that defense mechanism is hardwired into us. So when someone wants to speak into your life, how fun is that? How much do you love when someone calls you and says, um, hey, hello, could we meet at Starbucks? There's just something on my mind about you. I just want to get off my chest. Uh, I just want to say something. I want to speak into your life. I want to speak the truth to you about you. Is that okay? How many of you are like, oh, I can't wait for Wednesday. It can't come soon enough. You dread it. You're pulling into the Starbucks parking lot and your stomach's just like, I even have people we invite to dinner just for fun. And they're like, are we in trouble? It's like, we're so nervous when someone wants to tell us something because that's uninvited feedback. That's like, oh, I stepped in it now. I, I don't know what I did to make you mad, but I'm not looking forward to hearing about how I messed up. But imagine how freeing it would be. You know, because you're, you're in a relationship, there's so many things you want to say. Can I just, uh, I want to really address this with you. I really want you to be different in this area. And there's all these things you want to say, but every time you try to say it, it gets rejected, right? The Kung Fu is good. Every time you try, you're like, all right, all right, no, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. And your attempts to try to bring up the issue. Why are you always looking at other girls? What do you mean I'm looking at? What? I can't help it if they walk in front of me. You want me to go like this? You want me to, you know, so you get into the whole conversation. It's like, I'm not going to get anywhere. This person is in constant denial. They're always defending themselves. Even when they can't defend themselves, they're trying to defend themselves. Right? Imagine the power then if you were asked by somebody you care about, hey, what can I change to make you happier? And that's power because it's no longer an invasion force. It's no longer somebody intruding into you, injecting their truth. You're asking for it because you care about the relationship. And that other person will be astounded. They'll be like, are you serious? You're asking me what I want to say to you? Well, if you're listening, here's one thing. And that's one of the things that this fish fry conversation is built around is instead of me having to tell you stuff, you're asking me, look, we love each other. I care about you. I want to be my best for you. What can I change or do differently or start doing so that your happiness quotient in this relationship goes up? What can I start doing for you so you feel more loved by me? For starters, you can erase all them girls' names from your phone, right? <laughs> I mean, what can I do for you? Can you imagine how freeing it would be to be asked that question by someone you love? You really want to change because you love me? Then suddenly you're not vindictive. You're not vicious. You're like, well, let me choose my words carefully. This might not come around every day. So what's the thing I want to say? And so that comes to the second part of the setup, which is this. The idea of the monthly fish fry. I didn't say the minutely fish fry. I didn't say the hourly fish fry. It's once a month. Okay. Once every 28 to 31 days you do this. And it's like this. You know with catch and release fishing, right? We're trying to preserve the, the fish that are in the pond. And so most of the fish you catch, especially the little ones, what do you do? You know, use an unbarbed hook. You get it. You take a look at it. You take a picture on your iPhone. 
proof that you caught it, and then you throw it back. And what you say is, it's the little ones. I'm going to throw you back because I caught you once, but if I throw you back, I'll catch you again later when you're bigger. But there's one fish you catch every day that you bring home and it becomes dinner. It's too big to throw back. That's going to be my food. And that's this idea. You know how when so many things are coming up, but you say to people, you know that phrase, I got bigger fish to fry. I've got bigger fish to fry. It's like police in the inner city who don't give a lot of speeding tickets because speeding is not a big problem in that area. And if you come up to a Chicago cop and you're like, um, that person's registration sticker is outdated on their license plate. The police officer, even though that's against the law, they're going to be like, get out of here. I don't have time to be worried about that right now. That's not what I'm looking for. Out here in Barrington, you get busted every single time. Your sticker changes colors, right? But in a different place with different priorities, what they'll say to you is, we've got bigger fish to fry. This is not the most important thing on my radar right now. And and this is a principle we need to learn. That's what I mean by letting 90% of the things slide. It's not to say that didn't bother you or that that's not important or it's not a real flaw. What we're saying is it's a problem, but it's not the biggest problem. It's a fish, all right. It's too small to haul in and try to cook. So I'm going to throw this one back into the water, believing that if it grows into a bigger problem, I'll catch you someday. Don't worry. There's a lot of months in the year. And there's a lot of months in a human life. And eventually, when you throw the little fish back, all right, so this guys look he's got wandering eyes, but he's got bigger problems. We'll get to the wandering eyes later, but right now, his drug addiction is a bigger problem. Are you feeling that? Maybe he smokes, and you don't like the smoking and all that. But what if he doesn't know Christ, and you have a complete spiritual gap in your family? I'd say that's a bigger issue. Right? So you understand how it works. You're saying you're doing triage every day. I can nitpick at everything that bothers me, but there's no way you're going to stand for it and let me fix everything about you. So once a month, there's an appointment we're going to protect, and at that appointment, I'm going to pull out the biggest fish on my hook, and I'm going to fry that sucker good. And because I know that day is coming, I'm constantly thinking, all right, that bothers me. If it's still bothering me on the 15th when we have our, our, our lunch, I'm going to bring it up. But chances are between now and the 15th, something will bother you even more. That original thing will just go away. It'll fix itself. Or it'll stay where it is. It'll stay small. And so we're saying to one another, every month, I'm going to remodel just one room. You can live everywhere else in safety. But we're going to remodel one room this month. And when we remodel it, you got to be in there with me. I won't do it alone. So that's the commitment we're making to one another, is don't fix everything about me, but I agree to have one thing changed as regularly as I can. Do you understand that? So think about it. So if you're married, in one year, you get to address 12 big issues in your partner. And if you stay married in an average lifetime, let's say 40 years of marriage, you will fry nearly 500 fish together, man. That's a lot of changing, a lot of growing, a lot of bending. And it's all done in partnership, not against you, but with you. Because this is something we're in together. The couples who have taken me up on this and tried this say it's very, very helpful. It's revolutionized the way they feel about their relationship. Because it's given them a place to vent the little things. It's opened up the pores in their filter a little so most little things slip through. And they tackle the big, important things one at a time. And their partner is changing and growing. And it feels so much better to be alive with that person. Do you think you can adopt a strategy like that? Where because you're going to have this appointment, most of the little things can be thrown back into the pond. You'll always fish that same pond, won't you? You'll catch the big ones later. Let it go. Work on one thing at a time and forgive all the other things quickly. Here's another important thing. Most of you don't talk to the people you're closest to with this kind of language. If you read this, you'd be like, eh, it's so like formal and polite, and that's not how we talk to each other. Well, maybe it's how you should talk to each other more often. I've observed that most people, they speak the most crudely and the most carelessly to the people they say they love. 
A telecommuter, the telemarketer calls like, hello, oh, I'm sorry, we, we gave to the police department last year, can you call back next year maybe? And they're so polite to the telemarketer, but then their, their spouse calls, what? Yeah, I told you I'd already do that. What else do you need? All right, bye. I'm like, who was that? Your enemy? No, that was my wife. I'm like, man. The way we talk to the people we love doesn't sound like they're people with whom civility is important to us. Where matters count. Where decency, kindness, politeness are even in view. We're so sloppy with the people we know can't escape us, right? Where are you going to go? I don't care how I talk to you. you got nobody else. That's not right. It's so important that when we talk to our loved ones, we speak in a way that's honoring. Reserve the, the street talk for, for the people out there on the street that aren't going to be in your inner circle. But the people you care most deeply about, pull out your most loving, dignified, honoring voice. Use language that uplifts. Bless each other in the way you communicate. Try a little kindness and some basic manners. And that's why it's so important when you read this thing that I've written for you, don't go off script. Okay? I've given this sheet of paper to a lot of couples, and I say, try it out, and they'll come back a month later and go, well, we tried your stupid fish fry thing, and it turned into a huge fight. Well, if it did, it's because you did it wrong. The thing works. Tell me about it. Every single time. It turns into a fight because they don't follow the script. It's a script for a reason. There's a story arc. There's a way you're supposed to go through this, a whole process, and each step builds on the last one. And if you deviate from it, you're not going to get the promised result, okay? It's just how it works. It's just like a recipe. You can't take out the sugar and almost get a cake. Do you know what I'm saying? So you've got to honor and respect and trust the script. And use the language. You don't have to say it verbatim, but please learn to say it in your own language as closely approximating the sentiments there as possible. And what I hope you might do is raise the bar on civility in the way that you talk to the people you're closest to. Can I just say this is not just for romantic relationships? Okay? Students can do this with their parents. Have you, can you imagine having a conversation with your kid where you say, look, Little Jimmy, I love you. What can I do differently to be a better dad to you? And when they're young, they'll be like, you know, get me a PS3, stuff like that. They'll say things like that. But as they get older, you'd be amazed what your children say to you. What can I do to be a better father to you, to make you feel more loved in this family? You could do it with your siblings, with your own parents, with a close friend. And when you begin asking these powerful questions, the responses will blow you away. And suddenly, the places you've been stuck forever will start to move just a little bit. And it'll be very free. So I really want to encourage you to pick up that thing, that monthly fish fry. And if you're not in a romantic relationship, that's all right. This is still relevant to your life. I guarantee you there's a relationship that will benefit from applying these principles. It's my hope that one of the things that will distinguish harvest culture is that people who hang around with us for a a month or so will say, those people are crazy forgiving. It's almost reckless. You get away with just about anything with those people because they just pardon all the time. I pray that we will be a church that releases people from the crimes and sins of their past, gives the other person room to redefine who they will be in our lives. Set the prisoners free. Why don't we pray together? My guess is that as you're hearing this, if you've managed to stay awake, there's one relationship at least in your life that you're thinking about. And I think it would be good for us to spend a little time in response just praying that God would work in that important relationship so that it would, it would change from picking at every little thing 
to just recklessly, generously releasing and pardoning and forgiving and overlooking. I think we just need to pray, God, if, I, if I'm going to sit down and have this fish fry conversation, please let it go well. And can I just share with you, if you're a single person but you're dating and the person you're with cannot even understand the language that you're using when you talk like this, it's like, what? Fish, what? What are you talking about? That's stupid. If the person you're with will not even give you the dignity of hearing you out, it's probably a good bet you're with the wrong person. I think we lower our standards and we pay the price. The world is littered with broken relationships that prove that. So I'm giving this to you as a tool, but pay attention to what your partner, what the people in your relationship do with this. It's my prayer, my hope, that this will revolutionize and make more healthy every relationship that matters to you in your life. Why don't we spend just a minute quietly praying up our key relationships? And then I'll just close for us. Jesus, we pray for these relationships in our lives that mean so much to us. And when they're not going well, we're brokenhearted because those people are our heart. They mean something very important to us. So God, we pray that where we are powerless, where we cannot reach in and change anyone else's heart, you will begin now to come and show your power in our relationships. For our part, give us faith to trust your way to stop doing the things that feel natural to us and begin living our lives according to the way of Jesus Christ. Give us strength to do that because we know, God, in our hearts that we don't want to do that in the heat of the moment. Help us to change the way we relate. And we pray that we would see the glory, the joy of your power at work in our relationships. Make us a forgiving church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.